Hello, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and I'd like to welcome you to the Infectious Diseases Society of America podcast series. Today, we welcome Dr. Michael Sag, MD, who is on the IDSA Hepatitis Task Force and who is director of the Center for AIDS Research at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Sag will discuss hepatitis C epidemiology. Welcome to this IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network webinar series. This is the first of several, and we're going to start off today talking about HCV epidemiology and um, what's called the silent epidemic. We're going to start with a, a few disclaimers. Um, any diagnostic or therapeutic recommendations and all opinions expressed during this uh, knowledge workshop is the views of myself um, and not the views of the IDSA necessarily. The webinar viewer should use their own independent professional judgment in making clinical decisions. The webinar viewer assumes all risks and in using this uh, information provided, the IDSA bears no legal liability for resulting from the information provided and the IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network is in full compliance with HIPAA. So you could tell that was written by some lawyers. We're going to have a question and answer session after the presentation. I'll take these questions um, uh, directly. Uh, please use the chat function in your GoToWebinar control panel. If that can't be accessed, there will be phone lines uh, will be unmuted so you can ask questions directly. Please mute your phone and computer when not asking questions. Uh, obviously, be courteous to other attendees with other asking questions. And, uh, and if you want to, you can ask your question in the form of a hypothetical case study. So this is a new exercise from the uh, IDSA Hepatitis C Knowledge Network. Uh, there's going to be a series of monthly hour-long webinars to educate IDSA members on current recommended practices to treat and manage patients with hepatitis C virus. It provides information on critical knowledge of topics to effectively identify, treat, and manage HCV. It's an opportunity for HCV treaters to engage with HCV experts discussing issues related to complex patient care and effective, discussing effective treatments. And if you want to find out more, there's a website there, um, and you can use your membership login to access it. So I think we're ready to start. I'm going to try to keep my comments to around 30 minutes or so, so that we don't go A, too long, and more importantly, we have time for questions. And today's topics will be mostly on the epidemiology of the virus, and it will be followed by Dr. Sokowski, Dr. Nagy, and others on uh, current treatment and future treatments uh, in the next uh, couple of webinars related to this series. So we're going to talk overall about the hepatitis C virus epidemiology, morbidity and mortality, special populations, some new CDC and now public health task force recommendations on uh, screening, how to test for hepatitis C, and a little bit of a hint of future attractions in terms of what's coming along in these uh, therapeutic areas for hepatitis C virus, which is really, really exciting right now. So let's get started. Hepatitis C 
is worldwide and really affects almost 3% of the world population, 130 to 170 million chronic infections, and it accounts for 27% of the cases of cirrhosis and 25% of hepatocellular carcinoma that's due to hepatitis C virus. So, so the, this is a large cause of morbidity and mortality uh, in the, uh, around the world. And in, uh, among people who are HIV co-infected with hepatitis C, 75% of patients with HIV are co-infected with hepatitis C in some of the countries, and this includes China, Vietnam, Russia, and you could maybe throw Baltimore in there as well if you wanted to. 499,000 uh, HCV-related deaths annually and 3 to 4 million new infections with hepatitis C each year. When we take it to the United States, it's really not fully known, but it's guesstimated that about 5 million people in the United States are infected with hepatitis B or C and 65 to 75%, and actually that number has been estimated to be as high as 85% of these folks are not aware of their diagnosis. So throughout this talk, you're going to hear me, you're going to hear facts and figures that sound very similar to HIV back in the day and to some degree of how HIV is today. About 150,000 Americans die from liver cancer or end-stage liver disease associated with hepatitis B or C, and this will be over the next decade. The death rate from HCV is expected to triple in the next 10 to 20 years if we do nothing, and the total medical costs for untreated HCV could more than double uh, in the next 20 years from about $30 billion per year to $80 billion, and this is in the absence of treatment. Just to kind of review the history, I think we tend to forget that a lot of infectious diseases were unknown prior to the 1900s or 1930s. The same is true for viral diseases like hepatitis C. Back in the 40s, it was, it was noted that this had an infectious nature uh, for hepatitis and that it was associated with transfusion. In the mid-60s, hepatitis B virus was discovered, and in the 70s, this whole concept of non-A, non-B hepatitis that was really related to transfusions, and we should bookmark this because this is why so many people with hepatitis C in the United States today uh, were born between the years of 1945 and 1965, just to introduce this concept. This is called the birth cohort, meaning they were born in that time frame between 1945 and 1965, and a lot of the reason they were infected was because of this non-A, non-B hepatitis associated with transfusion. Therapeutics started in the mid-80s and started initially with interferon. There was a test developed by Chiron for hepatitis C in the late 80s, and then the evolution of treatments have now gone to uh, what was initially PEG interferon with ribavirin, and now within the next year, uh, all oral therapies with the so-called DAAs, or direct-acting agents, will be available. If we look at the overall incidence, this kind, of, this kind of emphasizes what I was saying earlier, that if you look at the cases per 100,000, that most of the new cases were happening during this period of blood transfusions before there was screening. And then when the um, blood supply started getting screened overall for uh, possible infectious causes like HIV, the incidence started to drop and then the first HCV drug was licensed and implemented into the blood supply and then the second test and you can just see a dramatic decline in new cases or incidents. The problem is that the prevalence 
um, was so high uh, that this has continued and the expression of disease is what we're really facing now for reasons that will become clear in just a second. And the reason that's clear, should become clear, is that this is a natural history. So people infected acutely, a proportion of them, say 15 to 20, 25 percent, will resolve this on their own. 75 percent will go on to develop chronic hepatitis C, and a large majority of them, or a proportion of them, will have normal ALT, say 30 percent. And among those with chronic HCV, 70 percent will develop what's called chronic hepatitis, and 30 percent or so will go on to develop cirrhosis. In HCV, only those who have cirrhosis can go on to develop hepatocellular carcinoma. This is very different than hepatitis B, where just a chronic infection, even without cirrhosis or scarring, can lead to hepatocellular carcinoma. It's only the cirrhotics in hepatitis C who will develop hepatocellular carcinoma. And of course, cirrhotics are at risk of going on to end-stage liver disease, liver failure, and death, and can only be rescued by a transplant. The key thing on this slide to pay attention to is the timeline. It takes about 30 years from initial infection to develop cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma. So if you do the math, someone infected in 1960 or 65, by the time it's 1995, they may begin to get sick. By 2005, et cetera, they will be coming in and showing up. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Look at this another way, if I orient you to the timeline, here we are. These are people who were infected back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. It takes a long time for the chronic hepatitis to sort of become manifest. A proportion of people will develop um, a cirrhosis. And you can see that if we look into the future, we're right at the peak of the expression of HCV disease. Uh, over the next 20 to 30 years. So the timing of these new drugs could not be better. I mean, sure, we would have liked to have had it a couple years ago, but it's really good timing for these new drugs and clearing a virus. As far as hepatocellular carcinoma goes, the incidence since 1975 has tripled, and it continues to increase. So it's overall 3.5% per year, disproportionately affecting blacks, and also affecting mostly older people uh, over the age of 50. 50% of all hepatocellular carcinoma is caused by HCV. And as I've already mentioned, uh, another good proportion is caused by hepatitis B virus infection. If you look at the change in annual incidence or mortality, if you will, sorry, the change in annual mortality of all cancers. There's only a few that have gone up over the last decade. The ones that have gone up the most is liver disease, liver cancer, and inflammatory bowel disease associated cancer. Melanoma continues to rise, pancreas a little bit, and soft tissue. But most cancers are actually going down in incidence, mostly because we're screening, for example, for prostate or for colon. But the liver disease continues to increase, and that's true for both men and women. What I think is really interesting is that if we look at the total age-adjusted rates of mortality in the United States from 1999 to 2007, HIV is dropping and HCV is rising, and about five or six years ago, they crossed. So now hepatitis C is a, is a bigger cause of death than HIV at the present time.
looked at another way if you break it down by age groups, um, those folks with cirrhosis or chronic liver disease, um, the younger folks you can see there's a peak here at about fourth cause of death um, in the United States, but it is a major player for folks between their ages of 45 and 65, and again, in a little bit of the younger population as well. What's fascinating is, remember, the test was available in the early 90s, so if you look at the time to death from somebody being diagnosed in this time frame, the median time to death after diagnosis is about three years. And when you think about it in terms of that continuum of about a 20 to 30 to 40 year uh, development of disease after infection, what does this tell you? It tells you that most people with hepatitis C are being diagnosed late. And for those of us who were around at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, we, now, we know that this was, a big, this was a big problem for us with HIV, and we've gotten better with more universal screening, same thing needs to apply here to hepatitis C. So the testing recommendations that were initially issued in 1998 were more targeted. It was looking for people who'd ever used illegal drugs or injected, clotting factors made, blood transfusions, etc. So it took the epidemiology and just tried to apply it. But there wasn't the notion of screening large populations of people because sometimes it's hard to get an accurate history. Sometimes we don't have time to collect all that information on a new patient visit. And so this has now evolved, as you'll see, over the last couple of years. And the reason it evolved is because of the NHANES um, epidemiologic studies that showed that 65.6% of those with hepatitis C in the United States were born between 1945 and 1965, this so-called birth cohort. Especially true in men, but it's true for men and women. And overall, this is the reason that we're looking specifically at the birth cohort as part of the new recommendations for screening. Another way to look at this, between 2001 and 2008, when they did surveys, um, they could see that of 170 persons interviewed, 51% were unaware of their infection, 49% already knew it, and the reason for previous testing was routine blood tests, symptoms of hepatitis, blood donation. But this was a very uh, uh, sort of skewed population, and the, the numbers, as I said earlier, it's more like 75% of people who have hepatitis C don't know their status. Among those who, even that they had IV drug use or hemophilia or HIV, the actual compliance with testing these folks isn't so great. HIV, more comprehensive care, primary care being provided, 62% of folks have been tested. And that's really unfortunate because it really should be 100%. But you can see how simply just segregating out by risk factor doesn't assure that people will be tested. Now this, for all the HIV treaters who are listening in, looks extremely familiar, right? Here's the cascade, except for HCV. So if among 3 million, HIV is about 1 million, 3 million people living with HCV, only about 50% have ever been tested, and that's probably high. It's probably less than that. Among those tested, only 38% total are in care. Only 23% have had been tested for RNA, and then a, a paltry 11% have ever been treated. And with the previous therapies, about half of them 
will go on to develop um, uh, cure or SVR. So anytime you see SVR, that means sustained virologic response, you can substitute the word cure, the treatment led to cure. And obviously that's another huge difference between HIV and HCV. HIV, we can control the virus and shut down its replication but not eradicate it. With hepatitis C, we can eradicate the virus with actually as little as 8 to 12 weeks of therapy with some of the newer direct acting agents used in combination as an all oral, often once a day, one pill once a day regimen. So I've already hinted at this, but there's a limited effectiveness of risk-based HCV testing. A lot of missed opportunities. And so again, coming back, pick your number, 45%, 85% unaware of their infection. So when we think about a prevalence-based strategy, this concept of this birth cohort, 5.3 times higher incidence, or sorry, prevalence than other groups, 81% of all adults with HCV. Um, these other things are more health economics issues, but it represents 73% of all HCV-related mortality. And so this is the reason why uh, back in 2011, August of 2011, the CDC recommended testing all people regardless of their perceived risk who were born between 1945 and 1965 should be tested at least once for hepatitis C virus with a screening antibody test. And the, there's very few harm associated with this. Um, it's hard to imagine what a serious adverse event would be for just from a screening of just a blood test, but um, the benefits are pretty profound. It reduces the risk of hepatitis, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma by 70%, all-cause mortality by 50%. Another way to look at the burden of HCV is obviously in terms of what we're going to see in the future. So if we're sitting here, this is our current status in terms of deaths, decompensated uh, liver disease, hepatocellular carcinoma, or the need for a transplant, the transplants are limited mostly by the availability of livers. So the folks that have decompensated um, cirrhosis or who have hepatocellular carcinoma, the majority of these folks die. And so that contributes to the deaths. And you can see that without doing anything, no treatments, no screening, over the next 20, 30 years, the death rate is going to skyrocket and go up by two, three, fourfold in the next 20 or 30 years if we don't do anything. So the CDC made this recommendation of the birth cohort as published at MMWR back in August of 2012. And they recommend screening everyone born between these dates, anyone who's HIV infected, anyone who's ever used illicit drugs, anyone on chronic long-term hemodialysis, received clotting factors before 87, transfusions, or organ transplants before 92, persons with persistently abnormal uh, AST or ALT elevations, healthcare, emergency medical folks after needle sticks, and then children born to HCV positive women. It sounds very similar to HIV recommendations for screening, except for this, that we would recommend screening virtually everyone for HIV who's been sexually active, or as I like to say, ever thought about being sexually active. But here we're really going for the asymptomatic, otherwise negative risk folks born between 45 and 65.
And what's cool is just about a week ago, maybe less, the uh, U.S. Prevention Tra Treatment Task Force recommended HCV testing, uh, and this is this is pretty substantial. Those of you familiar with USPSTF know that they're a very relatively conservative body, and they don't typically make recommendations of a strong nature until lots of evidence. I mean, I think they wait too late personally, but they came along and actually agreed with the CDC and recommend uh, screening for this birth cohort. Um, and that it had at least a small net benefit. But I, as you can imagine, with these new treatments coming along and we get patients referred over for therapy, uh, I think it's going to be much more than a small benefit. So as far as case definitions for hepatitis C in the past or currently, um, there really isn't any criteria for clinical presentation, but you want to have somebody who's got an anti-HCV antibody and then at least one additional test, and that's usually an HCV nucleic acid test or RNA. That's the one that's really going to be the one that nails it down. And I think, as you'll see in the next slide, the recommendation for, appro for approaching this is that you take the folks, for example, somebody born in 1960, you can do a rapid test in your office, or you can send off an ELISA or some other antibody test. If that test comes back negative, then you can typically stop. The exception might be someone who's immunocompromised or someone who you suspect might have acute HCV. Sound familiar? Yes, sounds a lot like HIV. But a negative test here is pretty much negative. Now, those who have a positive antibody test, you're going to send for confirmatory HCV RNA. If that test is negative, what it typically means is that they probably were infected with, acutely with hepatitis C at some time in the past, but they've cleared it. They had the acute infection, they're part of that 20% in the natural history who just got rid of it on their own, and they don't need any further testing, and they're not a, they've already gotten rid of the hepatitis C. They've cured themselves for the most part. But those who do have positive HCD RNA, it's usually not subtle. It's about 10 to 100 fold higher than what we typically see, maybe a thousand fold higher than with HIV. So a typical HCV RNA level might be two to three million copies of virus per mil. And that means that they have current or chronic HCV infection, and that's when we want to either treat them or consider them for treatment ourselves or refer them to care. And a lot of ID docs are now taking on HCV therapy. That's it's very important, I think, because of the large numbers. Hepatologists, there just aren't enough of them. There aren't enough GI docs who are willing to do this. And it's an infectious disease, so that's why the IDSA is uh, supporting these seminars and, and making this happen. As far as cost, one of the questions that you'll see at the end that someone sent in before the webinar was, what's the most cost-effective screening? Really, it is this. You start with the antibody test, and you confirm with the HCV RNA. If you took an approach of just using HCV RNA, you could do that, but the cost is almost three times what the antibody is. So if you think you're in a high prevalence area, maybe it would be more cost-effective to start with the HCV RNA. But I think for most of us, where there's a one to two percent uh, overall uh, prevalence of HCV in our population. I think there, the screening antibody followed by a confirmatory HCV RNA is really the way to go. Once you get this, then it's very important. 
once you know the HCV RNA is positive and they really have infection, then you want to do an HCV genotype. And if you remember, there are several different types of genotypes. For the, for the most part, the, they're in the groups one, genotype 1, 2, 3, and 4. There are some others, but those are the major ones. In the United States, genotype 1 is the most prevalent. And there's usually 1A or 1B. And as far as treatment goes, think that 1B is a little bit better to treat than 1A, which is awful to treat. And that's how you can keep them straight in terms of how they do. Genotype 2 is probably the easiest to treat of those four. Genotype 3, probably second easiest. Genotype 4, followed by genotype 1, with 1A being the worst or hardest to eradicate. Now, as far as eradication goes, it is very durable. There are some people who have a re-exposure and become infected again. This is especially true among men who have sex with men. But for the most part, when you eradicate HCV with therapy, it's durable. So again, remember, SVR here means cure. So we're looking at the overall liver failure, hepatocellular carcinoma, and death as a composite index for all-cause mortality. If over the course of years, you can see that there's a big difference here between those who we were able to cure and those who we couldn't. But it's even more dramatic when you just look at liver failure and in terms of eradication for just liver failure alone. It's hugely impactful. So we want to catch people before they develop a cirrhosis and ideally get rid of their virus. Even once they have cirrhosis, curing their hepatitis C will improve their overall outcome. You can actually get reversal of some degree of the scarring over time, and you, as you reduce scarring, you also are reducing the risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. As far as therapies, that'll be a topic of a, of a future webinar by our, some of my colleagues, but you can just see that overall, the SVR cure rate with interferon, plain interferon alone for six months versus 12 months, then you get to uh, interferon plus ribavirin, you got about a 35% cure overall. Again, remember with genotype 1, it's going to be less robust than this. If it's genotype 2, it's going to be a little better. But when the interferon was given for 12 months, but then here comes peg interferon alone, peg interferon with ribavirin for 12 months, getting about 55% success. And then with the new PIs, either telaprevir or vosaprevir, with peg interferon and ribavirin for 6 to 12 months, you can get a cure rate of about 70%. However, with the new drugs coming, let's call it perfectivir, <laughs> and one of the direct-acting agents, and that can be used all alone without PEG-RIBA, without PEG-interferon ribavirin, that all oral regimens, what we're seeing now, even for genotype 1, we're getting cure rates above 90% in several of these new regimens. So it's really an exciting time, and it underscores the need to know who's infected, especially catching them early, getting them on treatment, eradicating the virus so that they don't have complications of cirrhosis or hepatocellular carcinoma down the road. So if we talk about future burden, here's what happens if we do nothing. We can see that this peak, like I defined earlier, happening as far as death, going to be peaking in 2030 to 2040. But look at this. If we only treat 15% of the total population of the 3 million in the U.S. Um, who are infected, then you'll see this type of reduction. If we treat 25%, 50%, 
75%. Now you can see where we can start having impact. So this is where I quibble a little bit with the uh, U.S. Task Force because they said it would be a small benefit. I think that benefit will be huge. And, of course, our goal would be uh, capturing everyone who's hepatitis C infected and treating them, but we aren't quite there yet. sure what happened here. Whoops, my last slide blended. So this was this was to be a summary. Let's see if I can get this to work. Um, well, I can try to read through this with you. Uh, the prevalence of chronic hepatitis C is large. Many, if not most, persons living with chronic hepatitis C remain undiagnosed. Screening and leakage and care and treatment must be used to improve health gains from the new therapies. The burden of morbidity and mortality is large and growing if we do nothing. A one-time test for persons born between 1945 and 1965 is cost-effective and can reduce morbidity and mortality. The HCV treatment outcomes uh, can cure infection and prevent uh, further progression. In fact, can reverse some of the damage done. Collaboration between all of us working together, of course, can work, and we can control and virtually ultimately eliminate HCV transmission and disease if we do this well. So I'd like to thank a lot of my colleagues who contributed data and slides for this, uh, in particular uh, John Ward and Carol Brogart, that uh, all these people have contributed, and some of these folks you're going to be hearing from uh, as part of the further seminars uh, of this. So that was about... 30 minutes or so of presentation. I think I'm still pretty much on time. We've got about 35 minutes left for questions. And so um, I'll just remind you that the next webinar is Mark Sokowski, and he's going to talk about medical management, and that's the beginning of the uh, exploration of, of new therapies, and then it'll progress on to talk ultimately about what's in the pipeline and what those drugs look like. That next webinar will be July 12th uh, at 1 p.m. Uh, so please go to the web, idsociety.org, and the HCV Knowledge Network to register for this. So I'll start it off with a question that was sent in initially, and I've sort of already answered it, but I'll go over it again. What is the most minimal and cost-effective screening test before starting treatment with HCV? So I'm going to break this question down into two. For just overall screening across the population, especially those in the birth cohort, an antibody test is the right one. And as I'm talking, if you have a question, you can type it into the chat, and I'll see it, and I can answer it directly. Uh, we can also have you phone in, um, and uh, that is an option, I think, if you call uh, directly into the line. Um, and I, so anyway, to answer the question, uh, the most minimal uh, cost effective for screening would be an antibody test, if positive, then move on to a HCV RNA test. There are some occasions that are kind of uncommon where the antibody test can be negative, but the HCV RNA would be positive. I think you do that when somebody is uh, immunocompromised, when you suspect that they might have acute HCV infection or if there's someone um, who uh, has elevated AST, ALT that you can't explain otherwise, and you want to just make sure they're not having some chronic hepatitis virus infection, um, go ahead and check the HCV RNA, because it could be positive. It's not common, but it, it could be positive in that setting. Now, 
The second part of this question I could interpret is starting treatment for hepatitis C. Well, first you want to demonstrate they have positive RNA, and again, it's usually in the millions of copies. The second thing you want to do is know which genotype, because some of the drugs like telaprevir and bisoprevir work predominantly against genotype 1, don't have any activity against genotype 2 to speak of, have a little bit of activity against genotype 3, but not enough to really mention. And so other, some of the other new direct acting agents might have activity against some other genotypes. So you need to know the genotype of the virus. And then you need to stage the patient's liver scarring. And so um, the, um, the liver scarring can be assessed in a number of ways. And uh, this is what Dr. Sokowski will be talking about, but just to kind of lay it out there. The liver biopsy is the sort of gold standard. However, there are some non-invasive tests that you can do. Uh, one is a blood test called FibroSure and think of it as a scale between 0.0, .0 to 1.0. If that scale comes back at 0.2 or less, then there's very low likelihood of cirrhosis. If it comes back at 0 0.7, 0 0.8 or higher, you can feel pretty confident that person likely has cirrhosis. And if it's somewhere in between 0.2 and 0.7, then you don't know. And you probably either have to do another screening test like the next one I'm going to talk about or a liver biopsy. And the next one I'm going to talk about is one called a fibroscan. Now this is a uh, elastography type of uh, test. Just think of it like an ultrasound. Uh, it can be done at the bedside. And you can get it in your clinics now or your office and do it literally on site. It just got approved for use by the FDA about a month and a half ago. And what you do is you, you sort of shoot the sound wave through the liver, and the more dense or the more scarred the liver is, the higher the readout is in, in um, kilopascals. And that will actually tell you the likelihood of cirrhosis in that setting. And it's a pretty darn good test. It really is very accurate. Where it breaks down is in someone who's very obese or sometimes it's hard to get a good reading because you have to go between the ribs to get it going. But that's a new test that's actually pretty accurate and pretty good. Uh, but, but So to recap, knowing the HCV RNA is important, knowing what the genotype of the virus is, and then being able to stage a degree of cirrhosis is very important. So if you have a question, go ahead and put it into the chat box down there on your website. Not seeing any come through. I'll turn to the organizers and see if they've gotten any phone calls. Have we heard any questions by phone? Uh, Dr. Stack, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, this is Andreas Rodriguez from IDSA. We have not received any uh, messages via chat, so I will ask the um, listeners if they're interested and they've dialed in, they can unmute their phone and ask questions about, oh, I'm sorry, wait a minute. we do have some questions here. Um, so let me read these. Are you able to see these, um, Dr. Sack? I have not seen them in the chat box here, no. Okay. So the first question has to do with insurance and what do you do with patients who have no insurance? 
Yeah, so this is like HIV, isn't it? Except there's no Ryan White and no ADAP program. So these new drugs are going to be coming out. Uh, for testing, it's not that big a deal. I mean, um, the, the test is only about $30, but um, um, but that, and that could be a burden. But the, the, it's for the treatments where it's going to get expensive. So if somebody has no insurance, almost all these drug companies will have compassionate use programs that we can apply to and, and get access to, to therapy that way. I don't know what these new drugs are going to cost. The current protease inhibitors, that is, Lisepravir and Tilaprevir, when you put it together with the PEG-RIBA, the total combined cost is pretty staggering. It's about $40,000 to sixty-five dollars or $70,000 for a successful full course of therapy with either of these. Uh, the new direct acting agents I suspect are going to be expensive when they first come out. But the good news here is we're going to really get a look at supply and demand. And that is there are roughly, depends on who you count or how you count, 40 to 60 new drugs in development. There'll be two or three coming out in the next six to nine months. And by two years from now, my guess, is that there'll be somewhere around 10 to 12 or 14 new direct acting agents around. Now, my suspicion is that initially these costs will be high, but hopefully health plans can negotiate for lower pricing. And within three to four years, there could be 20, 25, 30 drugs out. And I think some of the newer ones that are coming out will start to put some price um, pressure on the existing drugs just to gain some market share. These drugs are very potent, very effective. Um, the one thing from the drug company perspective is that unlike HIV or, or cholesterol medicines or uh, blood pressure medicines, it's not a long-term exposure to the drug, so they have to make whatever return on investment from a 12 to 16 to 24-week intervention. And so they're going to be pricing it up there pretty high so that they can get their return on investment. On the other hand, uh, the competition should try to keep it down. But to answer the questioner's question, um, there will be compassionate use programs, and uh, that will be how we access it. Can you speak to insurance coverage of uh, FibroScan or FibroSure? It varies. Um, the FibroScan hasn't been out long enough to be um, explored. Um, and the and currently this is a little bit of a of a pitch, but um, the IDSA is currently working with uh, the WSLD to create some guidance on um, recommendations for treatment and screening. And I think once those types of things get out, that um, it will hopefully compel insurance companies to cover uh, the cost of these. But it is a standard of care. And so for the most part, I haven't had any trouble getting insurance companies to cover FibroSure, although I have heard have uh, other sites having problems. That test can be expensive. It can be up to $150 to $300 for the one test. But compared to liver biopsy, you know, it's less morbidity and, um, and, and uh, might be worth it in a cost-effective way. Okay. There's uh, two questions here. Um, around children. Uh, first one is, what about testing children born to HCV mothers? When and how? And I guess more generally, uh, for teenagers. Yeah. So for sorry, the teenagers, there's really, if, if they're born to a positive mom, yes, they should be tested. But if they're just an HCV, if they're, uh, 
their mom or is not known to be positive, then they're, they're probably one of the lowest risk populations for HCV in the United States because they haven't had any reason for exposure. The blood supply is now safe more or less with regard to HCV. Um, and even though this can be sexually transmitted, the rate of transmission is actually quite low and the prevalence in their cohort, their peer group is also low. As far as moms, yes, it can be transmitted. Think about it a lot like you would HIV. Um, it can be transmitted through uh, childbirth. Um, my recommendation would be to wait. Um, yeah, sure, you could check an H HCV RNA like you would for a uh, HIV uh, infected child, but right now, to my knowledge, there's no recommendation for treating children immediately at birth. That may change as drugs get better. You don't want to be giving a child interferon right at birth. That's a little tough. But with some of the direct acting agents, watch for some recommendations to change over time. But remember that antibodies in, a, in the newborn don't really develop fully until the third to sixth month of life and really out for a year. So if you're going to do an antibody test, you, you really should be doing that um, uh, sometime later. But right now, um, my understanding is that checking for HCV RNA could give you a diagnosis earlier, uh, say it's six weeks, but the question is what are you, what are you going to do about it at that point? And uh, so I think most of the folks are using antibody. Okay. Uh, the next two questions here are related to um, men having sex with men. One, could you uh, state again the incidence of HCV infection within this population, and then should we offer screening for HCV in the patients who've had a history of MSM? So to answer the second question first, yes, every every H uh, every MSM um, I think should be tested for. Um, hepatitis C virus. And as far as incidence, it's not fully known, but the the relative rate is around 1 to 3 percent um, as far as incidence annually. And it depends on the, where you are. But for example, in London, um, at the Royal Free Hospital there, um, they've looked at this and they've actually cured a number of men from hepatitis C only to find about 1%, 2% of them over the next year or two come back with a new infection. It's not a relapse. It's actually a new infection from exposure. So that's where I'm pulling my data uh, mostly from is that type of experience. But I think as we start looking for acute hepatitis C, especially in MSM populations, we'll see it. So somebody comes in with acute hepatitis, uh, think HCV. Think HBV as well, but think HCV, and you have to check with an RNA test to really make the diagnosis. Then the question is, do you treat those folks? And most people nowadays will allow them some time to clear uh, an initial four, six, eight, twelve weeks, and then if they don't clear, then they recommend treatment. And because it's a little bit easier to clear, at least with an interferon-based regimen, uh, in that six to twelve month period after initial infection than, say, 20 years after the infection. All of this is likely to change, I think, uh, when the direct acting agents come along because they're so much better tolerated and they're so much more effective. But the current recommendation is, as I just mentioned. Okay. Uh, there's a question asking what to do about patients who are still active IV drug users and drinking alcohol. Yeah. Tough, tough group to 
you know, have impactful conversations. I think at the baseline or at a reasonable thing is if they continue to use IV drugs and they're sharing needles, then screening them for hepatitis C every 6 to 12 months if they're in care is generally recommended. Every patient with hepatitis C or B for that matter uh, should be should refrain from drinking alcohol. It's like gas on a fire as far as progression. So if you have somebody who's HCV positive, and especially if they're HIV, HCV co-infected or worse, HCV, HIV, HBV triple infected, which actually happens, uh, those folks, you give them alcohol and their progression to cirrhosis isn't on the order of 30 years, it could be on the order of 10 to 15 years. So you really speed up progression to cirrhosis and complications of end-stage liver disease when alcohol is given uh, to somebody who's got underlying viral hepatitis. Okay. Uh, there's a question about uh, what are your thoughts on the use of home tests for HCV diagnosis? Yeah, I, they're, they're effective and um, I don't recall if they've, I don't think I don't recall if those have been approved yet. Um, they certainly have been talked about a lot, and the rapid test exists for uh, providers' practices and emergency departments. But um, I think it's overall a, an okay thing. I, I feel actually better about an HCV home test than I do about an HIV one, although those are now out. And the reason I feel a little bit stronger about the HIV one as far as concern is that uh, HC, HIV carries a fair amount of stigma. Um, and it's and it's more of uh, there's more of a fear factor I think in general with HIV. So we want to make sure that if somebody's testing themselves at home, that they should have a counselor available or know how to get support if that test comes back positive. The HCV again, I'm not aware. There could well be a home test. I'm not aware of it. Okay. Uh, the next question is asking for patients with an HCV antibody screen reactive but HCV RNA negative, which of them should be tested further and with what test? Once you have the HCV RNA that's negative, uh, I don't think there's necessarily a reason to test further. You, you've basically confirmed that they've had exposure to the virus. It seems like they've cleared it. And with the HCV RNA negative, I think you can pretty much stop there. Now, if later on they develop uh, transaminitis or something that you're worried about the liver, you might want to repeat the HCV RNA. Perhaps they've been reinfected or they've gotten a new infection. But generally speaking, the rule would be, or the, the algorithm would say, HIV, HCV antibody test negative, check the HCV RNA. If negative, then you can stop. Okay. And if a patient is uh, has a fibrosure uh, reading of less than 0 0.2, mm -hmm. do they still need uh, ultrasound every six months for HCC screening? No, uh, not okay. with HCV, and that's a great question. So remember that the hepatocellular carcinoma with HCV only happens in people with cirrhosis only with people with cirrhosis. So if somebody has a fibrosure 0.2 or less, their chance of cirrhosis is pretty close to zero. Therefore, their chance of hepatocellular carcinoma is close to zero. A very important distinction, though, if they have hepatitis B viral infection, even if they have F0 or no evidence of cirrhosis or scarring at all, 
they still are at risk because of the closed circular DNA of hepatitis B, they can go on to develop hepatocellular carcinoma, and those folks need to be screened periodically for hepatocellular carcinoma, but not the patients without cirrhosis who have hepatitis C virus infection. Okay. Um, next question is asking, what are the criteria on liver biopsy to start treatment? Wow. Um, there really aren't. <laughs> I think the criteria are to do some, some type of staging of scarring. That's required. That you need to do. Whether it comes from a liver biopsy per se or one of the other sort of non-invasive substitute tests is really a judgment call. Um, the, the liver biopsy is the gold standard, as I mentioned, but even within that, and I'm going to dig into a little detail here, and I'm sure Dr. Sokowski will talk about this even more in his medical management talk, but it depends on the type of needle. So a lot of times when you send a patient to interventional radiology, they're going to use a thinner needle, and you get fewer triads in the biopsy specimen. And so that type of biopsy is going to have less yield for cirrhosis than the standard liver biopsy that's often done by the hepatologist, where they use a larger bore needle and they get a larger uh, section of tissue. And so um, the, 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 the effectiveness of the liver biopsy at, at demonstrating cirrhosis really depends on the nature of how that biopsy is done and, and under what setting. That said, um, in my practice, I typically, for someone walking in the door, if they don't have any stigmata of cirrhosis, they don't have spiders, they don't have hemorrhoids, they don't have evidence of, of uh, progressive liver disease on exam, I will typically start with a fibrosure. Now, there's controversy. Dr. Nagy might argue with me. You can hear from her. Um, but, but generally speaking, I will start with a fibrosure and go from there. And if, again, if it's 0.2 or less, I'm more comfortable. If it's 0.55, let's say, then I might go ahead and check a liver biopsy. But what's interesting, let's, let's project into the future. Let's say five years from now. Lots of direct acting agents on the market. And they're, they're one pill once a day for eight to 12 weeks for a mono-infected person and a cure rate above 90% in that setting. In that regard, we might not ever want to, we might not even think about screening for the fibrosis if they look healthy otherwise. I guess the only reason why I might still want to know what their fibrosis score is, is to know whether I should be continuing to, or screening for hepatocellular carcinoma. But I can imagine somebody who's totally asymptomatic um, doing either a fibro scan or a fibrosure and being done with it and not putting them through a liver biopsy. If that answer sounded a little bit vague and wishy-washy, it's because it is and because there isn't really any hard and fast answer to the question. Look, uh, it, it reminds me, sorry, reminds me a little bit about whether or not you tap someone with um, syphilis, you know, for, for latent syphilis for uh, HIV and they've got, uh, you want to rule out CNS syphilis. You get all kinds of answers, but I think it's in that, in that realm. The follow-up question from this uh, attendee is, should we wait for the interferon-free treatments uh, when, they're, when they're available? I've been doing that a lot. 
the exceptions would be someone who has pretty awful stigmata of HCV. For example, let's say they have porphyria, cutanea tarda. Let's say they've got some cryoglobulinemia going on. Um, those people I will go ahead and treat now. Somebody who's got fairly advanced cirrhosis, but they don't have decompensated cirrhosis. I might treat now with an interferon-based regimen. But to be very honest, at our site we've had a number of studies of the direct-acting agents that are interferon-free, so I haven't had to really make that hard decision. One thing I will say, just to kind of give you a preview of Dr. Sokowski's talk, because this is critical. If you have someone who's got any kind of cirrhosis that's decompensated, they have ascites, they've got some degree of encephalopathy, you can kill them with interferon, kill them. So you don't give a patient with decompensated cirrhosis interferon under any circumstance. That's, that's one of those red letter warnings. So coming back to the question, there aren't many people I'm treating now with interferon at all, and I'm waiting for these new therapies. And the, the projections are that um, uh, Sofospivir will be probably out in December, January, as will Semeprevir, that's a protease inhibitor. The first one was a nucleoside, uh, NS5B. And then there's going to be Decladosphere, which will be coming out. That's an NS5A inhibitor sometime in this first or second quarter of 2014. And then a bevy of other medicines uh, coming out uh, through next year. So, so if you look, go back to this, to this talk and you look at the rate of progression, which is generally pretty slow, 20, 30, 40 years uh, for expression of disease of hepatitis C, waiting another six months to a year for most people is no, isn't going to really uh, hurt them in any kind of way, and you won't have to have them have the exposure to interferon. Okay, so I, I think you touched on this, but it, there's a couple questions you're asking, uh, whether cirrhosis, alcohol, or continued alcohol and IV drug use, are they contraindications to treatment? And I think you answered that it depends on the treatment. Yeah, it really does depend on the treatment. I, I probably wouldn't want to give anybody with active drug use, like injection drug use, or with alcohol to a significant degree that's creating dysfunction in their life. Uh, I probably would not give them an interferon-based regimen. I guess the jury's out on whether I might do that for someone uh, with a direct-acting agent regimen that could maybe clear it in, uh, in 12 weeks. But it would depend on the situation. Okay, and there's a question asking whether um, any prognosis or value meaning for the, the patient who had high viral load, uh, the higher the viral load, the worse prognosis? Or is there no, no not, not really. I, did, I didn't mention that, but that's a great, great, great question. So no, there doesn't seem to be any direct correlation between the, the height of the viral load and the progression of disease. So sometimes we think about that with HIV that the higher the viral load, the faster the decline of CD4 count. There's no correlation uh, at this point between hepatitis C virus viral load, 2 million, 6 million, 10 million, um, and the rate of progression to cirrhosis. That, that association doesn't exist. Okay. Uh, we have no more questions via the chat. I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording. Thank you for listening to another excellent presentation from the Infectious Diseases Society of America. This is Dr. Neil Skolnick. Thank you for listening.